Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. The Supreme Court has a lot of power in American society, and we were wondering, are there guardrails in place for justices on the high court to make sure they act ethically? Who, if anyone, has the responsibility of enforcing guidelines or norms with the justices? For this discussion, we caught up with Craig Green, professor of law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. So the Supreme Court, are there any guardrails for lack of a better term, bad behavior or unethical behavior? Is there anything in place that kind of polices that? Yeah, there are a few things. So there are a couple of statutes that deal with finances. And then um, there are a lot of norms, uh, sort of ideas of ethical norms that people are supposed to follow and use as guidance. There are precedents, the way judges and justices have dealt with things before. And then the backstop of all of it is the possibility of impeachment. Uh, which has not been applied hardly ever to federal judges and never to U.S. Supreme Court justices successfully. Very early days they tried, uh, but that's not been the tradition. That's not been the practice. Correct me if I'm wrong. There is a kind of a code of ethics for federal, the federal judiciary, but not necessarily for the Supreme Court. Am I correct? Yeah, there's a code of judicial ethics, which is binding. It's described as binding on federal judges who are not on the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court uses those that code as guidance, uh, but it's not binding in anything like the same way. Is there any reason why it wouldn't be? I mean, there are a few reasons. So um, there's like a small question and then there's a big question. Uh, the small question is whether there ought to be a code for uh, Supreme Court justice, some sort of ethical behavior. And maybe the answer is yes. But the, the bigger question is, what does it take to legitimate the Supreme Court? And uh, throughout the country's history, the people who have been appointed to the Supreme Court have been trusted to behave in an ethical way. Uh, They have, not always, but they have largely been thought to behave in an ethical way. And when they haven't, uh, there have been examples where folks have been uh, really criticized for their ethical behavior. They actually, uh, the one example I find, they resigned. And so this idea, you know, it's largely a matter of, um, you know, the things that exist outside the code have worked serviceably well uh, to produce ethical behavior. And and even today, I know that we'll talk about sort of the modern controversies. It isn't clear uh, exactly how many violations of the so-called judicial code that applies to other judges have actually happened for the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, so I think that's the sort of story about it. It's a respect for that institution, the Supreme Court's institution. Uh, they have to police their own uh, borders and call their own fouls, to use that kind of language. And they largely have done that uh, and maintain that kind of prestige and esteem and credibility, uh, you know, throughout the decades and centuries. When it comes to kind of policing norms and statutes or, or precedents and stuff like that, does it fall to the chief justice? Is he kind of the 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 person that would kind of point, hey, knock that off or, you know, stop doing that or that's okay? 
Yeah. So what happens in the Supreme Court stays in the Supreme Court is one way to say it. Um, and over time, things have changed, too. But in Chief Justice Roberts speaking particularly, he has a reputation for being focused on the Supreme Court's integrity and credibility as an institution. And I would certainly speculate without any inside information uh, that he has that kind of project in mind, that kind of mission of now, how does he execute it? People may remember there was some controversy about um, whether the justices would wear masks and whether Chief Justice Roberts told people to wear masks or he did it and they denied that he did and maybe he did anyway. You know, uh, there was some reporting kind of both ways on that. Uh, I think Chief Justice Roberts is in through the institution of the Supreme Court and he also is diplomatically subtle. If he sort of puts his foot down, that may be the worst way to get people to behave. Uh, but I think that certainly he and over time, a lot of justices, they have their colleagues, uh, they have collegial conversations, they talk about what's appropriate enough. That's one venue in which people talk about stuff uh, and the proper uh, ethics and modes and so forth. Although I think, again, anytime it would be hard for one justice to say to another, even the chief justice to say, hey, knock that off uh, because they have life tenure. They have their own responsibility. A related issue, not exactly the same issue, is issue recusal. So sometimes cases come in from the Supreme Court, some justice has a personal interest or some kind of a personal association. They don't announce even the reasons why, but they recuse themselves. Uh, Scalia did this time ago. Uh, judge, now to be Justice Jackson, has promised to do so because there are connections to Harvard. And those kinds of recusal decisions are all things that are very insulated from the public view. So there's never any explanation. We never know exactly what the sort of conversations are. But that's another way uh, that uh, individual justices, uh, without any evident patrolling uh, by particular colleagues, or certainly not the chief justice saying, hey, you got to recuse yourself. But those kinds of informal, soft power ways are the ways that a lot of the Supreme Court's ethics and recusal and this kind of stuff have all uh, been implemented in, and, if you want to call it that way, even enforced over time. But if a justice decides specifically with recusal, even if it's something that justices have done in the past, you know, on similar issues, if this justice decides, no, I'm fine, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I guess, you know, the chief justice can lean on them, but if they decide they're not going to recuse, they're not going to recuse. That's right. Uh, the chief justice could lean on them. Their colleagues could lean on them. Of course, the lawyers can make motions to have people recuse. That, that's often an initiating feature uh, for that kind of process. And then the public at large uh, could put pressure on them to recuse. In the end, uh, the number of people who can actually order a Supreme Court justice to do or not to do something, uh, that list is pretty small, if not zero. In the end, in the end, uh, if uh, the American public is so dissatisfied with the way a particular justice behaves, impeachment is the constitutional remedy. Now, why haven't there been more impeachments? Why isn't there more public pressure? Why aren't there more ethics boards or this kind of thing to enforce against the Supreme Court? Well, uh, because their work is so important to the country, the number nine, as it happens, is so important to the country. Having a majority, you know, some, uh, you know, an odd number that can produce a decision is so important. You know, anytime a Supreme Court justice recuses, unlike any other court in the country, anytime a Supreme Court justice recuses, there's no substitute. There's no like bench person who can come in, uh, so to speak, uh, like on a sports team to sort of fill in for that spot. And that really damages the institution. Uh, so uh, the the idea of having them self-patrol, I think, feels very dissatisfying in some sort of instances. Um, but it also is part of having a court 
that is truly independent and has this somewhat awesome responsibility for interpreting the Constitution, statutes, and applying law that nobody else can decide about, uh, the Courts of Appeals division about, or state Supreme Courts can't work out. They're the only ones, the, the court of last resort. And I think that having all of the players on the field all the time, whenever it can be, um, I think that that and, and the particulars of making those decisions have historically been left to individual justices and, of course, in this collegial environment that most of us never get to see, uh, talk amongst themselves about the appropriate and appropriate ways to handle things. The the court has become, I guess always has been, but it, it is so powerful. Uh, it just seems to me as a, a layperson that something with this level of responsibility and this level of power, there should be more levers to safeguard if a judge goes rogue or if there's some sort of big controversy. I think like a lot of things, we've learned that a, a lot of the processes and a lot of the, the 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 areas that we've come to count on seriously just depend on people respecting norms. And we are relatively powerless if people that don't respect norms decide, nope, not doing that, and you, nothing you can do to stop me. Seems like a recipe for eventual disaster. Yeah, so whether it's eventual or whether it's modern, you know, so whether it's sort of gradually coming to, to a certain endpoint or whether like right now is a particular crisis point. I think those are two different points of view a little bit. But, but let me just say, like, of course, this is a relatively – uh, certainly a relatively emphatic effort by politicians to design a judicial code for the Supreme Court. You know, there's a, there, there are bills that have been proposed to do it. Now, what, what's going on with that? Those are efforts by political figures to try to rein in and to codify and to write in black and white, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're not supposed to do, uh, in response to this set of perceptions about the Supreme Court as a political institution, as a rogue institution, as an overly powerful institution, as a politicized institution, all these kinds of things. Well, here's a response. We'll just design a code of judicial ethics. There's a certain sense in which that's very appealing for a certain set of folks to possible problems. Number one uh, is that code really going to cover what people are worried about? You know, so you write a code, it says something, it doesn't say other things. Is that the right approach? And second, who's going to enforce it? So I think this ends up being a real problem. One could have a lot of distrust and sort of worries and so forth about individual humans and their ability to be ethical. But that doesn't necessarily mean that anyone has any really greater operational trust for somebody else to make somebody be ethical because that somebody you're putting trust in instead of the other somebody. Everybody's human in the end. And so whether you have the Supreme Court justices with their own traditions and institutions and collegiality and whatever, making their decisions to try to keep their institution out of political hot water, ethical hot water, or whether you have some other entity that ostensibly and tries to be apolitical or whatever, but it's still in the same environment, and it's doing this whole new thing to try to regulate the Supreme Court. I don't know. In terms of practice, there isn't a lot of history for it in this country, for the Supreme Court, this relatively unique institution in our judiciary. At the same time, like the reason those bills are coming forward, the reason people have those ideas is people feel new threats in a new environment. And they feel differently about the Supreme Court than not all the time, than most of the time people feel about the Supreme Court. And so I, I think I think it, I think it's a, it's totally understandable why people would want the Supreme Court to behave more ethically, whatever that means. 
But whether that means that ultimately we wish the Supreme Court justices would behave more ethically or we wish somebody else would come up with a code to enforce against them to make them behave more ethically. Uh, you know, uh, the Supreme Court doesn't have time to be doing ethical proceedings all the time. Uh, and so I think that really puts a laser on what exactly is it people are worried about. And, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that what people are really worried about is an ethical code uh, for Supreme Court justice. Maybe it is. But we, I think that's the that's the urge. That is the urgency for this new political effort to try to design a code, to try to create an independent structure and figure out some way to get you know these perceived to be rogue justices back on back on track. It'd be virtually impossible to institute any kind of parameters just because the Supreme Court over the last 30 years you can people can talk it's apolitical and, and stuff like that a separate branch it has become kind of the crown jewel of our partisanship with regards to getting people on there and no matter i would imagine no matter how good the faith effort is uh to to do something if someone wanted to try it's going to be looked through the, a partisan lens yeah i think that's got to be right two really important points there one anything that comes out is going to seem political and so whatever code is put together, whatever board or whatever enforcement mechanism, that's going to be seen through political eyes. I think that's guaranteed. And the second thing is I do think this is related to the politicization of the confirmation process. So I think we've had a number of Supreme Court justices recently confirmed that one side for each of those justices has been outraged at how that justice was treated or whatever else. And the other side has been outraged that um, this kind of a justice is allowed to get a pass and go forward. And I think that that kind of stark political division in the confirmation process uh, with, I mean, you could say that it's the uh, crown jewel of partisanship, or you could say that it's a, a, a super hot poker uh, sort of site. It really burns especially hot. Um, the confirmation of Supreme Court justices it becomes an occasion for all kinds of other discussions about, for example, uh, in the most recent example, for example, uh, racial justice uh, and social movements, earlier times, uh, talk about deconstructing the administrative state, talk about a right-wing deregulatory agenda, uh, talk about Citizens United. Like these, these confirmation proceedings become hot points for discussion of the political, cultural, social issues that fracture the country. And how could that not spill over uh, to affect the justices who are on the bench, to affect the court? that they compose to affect the perception of the law that they produce. So I think there is a really deep sense in which this dissatisfaction with the ethical code is linked uh, if it is not derivative from these broader politicizations, particularly in confirmation hearings, but also a little bit more broadly, uh, American perceptions of the court and the law. And we've had this situation with Clarence Thomas and his wife, Virginia, who uh, it's come to light was... I guess we could say pretty active behind the scenes with kind of pushing for overturning the election. This leads to an argument, how much is one person responsible for what their spouse believes? But you kind of read the tea leaves. This is a close couple. This is not a couple that is together just for transactional purposes. Yet you had Clarence Thomas ruling on the release of information on January 6th and was the only justice to dissent. Uh, this is ugly and this is I don't know how you unwind this and the damage it does to the the appearance of legitimacy to the court. Yeah, so I think um 
the issue you mentioned is absolutely present in the headlines and it's it's relatively new. This is not something that you can look at sort of the decades or centuries of Supreme Court practice, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, including patriarchal politics. You know, there there weren't always women as prominent as uh, as Jenny Thomas. Um, and of course, politics didn't look quite the same way. Um, you know, I think that the reporting on Jenny Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, uh, has been. Uh, disconcerting in a couple of ways. And I think that people's perception of her role is really affected by what they think of January 6th, uh, whether they think that was uh, an insurrection, an assault on democracy, an assault on the Capitol that produced violence and death, whether they think that, or whether they think some other set of things about how this was a reaction to some sort of um, electoral controversy or something like this, you know, so people in America and your listeners and everybody divides a little bit on how they think about that. But, um, but I think that, uh, the consequences for Clarence Thomas, for justice Thomas, um, you know, I think it's true that, uh, in terms of, this is a phrase you hear a lot, not just propriety, but the appearance of impropriety. I think in terms of the appearance of impropriety, I think his participation in cases like that, uh, some of which have come up and some of which may come up, I think that participation really risks for a large fraction of America, not everybody, but for a large fraction of America, I think its participation in those cases risks an appearance of impropriety, comma, exactly the kind of things that individual justices in the past have recused for. If you remember one other, I mentioned this already, but one other instance is, you know, a judge soon to be Justice Jackson, you know, she's served on Harvard University's board. There's a case involving Harvard coming up, a big high profile case about Harvard. I think that during the confirmation hearing, she said she plans to recuse from that case, which means that there won't be nine justices. There's a possibility, et cetera, et cetera. But she believes that in terms of her own perception of pride, you know, she just shouldn't be involved in that case. Uh, I think that there are similar arguments that one could make, that one could hope that uh, that uh, Justice Thomas will take into account when he makes his individual recusal decisions for those cases that might come forward. It's not clear to me 100 percent just because of the details. It's not clear to me whether maybe he should have recused uh, for cases in the past already. But I think certainly the most important thing for that kind of stuff is looking forward now that information is in public view. Um, I think there, you know, I think it, it could be important. And he'll make his own decisions about, like, as we discussed, he has to make the decision about recusal, but he should hear from people, uh, colleagues, uh, journalists, the public, about what the expectations are for his connection to those events that his wife, I think it appears, really was a pretty influential figure in. Another example, just to think about other recusals, a lot of the justices come from government work. You're working with the federal government. And so there's a period of like a year or two where somebody was solicitor general, like Justice Kagan, they recuse from all the cases that they worked on for the government, you know, and not, you know, that's just, that's an ordinary feature of life is that, you know, you, you just, there, there's a whole range of things. There were a range of cases uh, that Thurgood Marshall recused from uh, back in the day, you know, so I think this idea of recusal is something that has never, uh, never worked perfectly, but I think that it, it has worked decently well. Uh, it's not clear Maybe it would. I'm not against it. But it may not clear that codifying recusal practices would necessarily help more than it hurts. I don't know. Maybe it would. Uh, but I just want to emphasize that right now and even the system we have, since it's not that realistic, think uh, legislation would pass. Even the system we have, uh, I think there are these norms and values and respect for the institution that really do 
uh, carry weight and should carry weight and need to carry weight for individual justice, especially including Justice Thomas, since his is the you know sort of the instance that's in the news today. I, I just I think that you know his uh, his and his court's credibility are affected by those kinds of things. Plenty of other things people are criticizing him for. Let them not be criticized for that. And it's his individual decision that can make that happen or not happen. If we could, in a magical world, get the partisanship out of it, look at it purely through an effective, a lens of effective and maintaining credibility. Is there anything we've talked about that you would like to see or you think would be effective? I don't know, for lack of a better term, kind of guardrails for a lot of the things we've talked about that would uh, kind of keep people out of situ out of murky situations and and give people uh, more confidence that things are are tr- being transparent and effective yeah i mean i think um it might like politics is symbolism and so it might be that having a code even if there isn't a great enforcement mechanism having a code as an expression of democracy and the public idea Hey, Supreme Court justices, we care about what you do, and we care that you stick to the straight and narrow and try to behave, you know, behave slightly. Like that symbolic politics might be important. I might support any number of things that sort of communicated that idea uh, to Supreme Court justices in a different way. Um, the easiest thing that people focus on and that what a lot of the judicial code of ethics and a lot of uh, is about money and sort of what are financial interests and so forth. And I just don't think that's really the issue that people in general are most worried about. In terms of credibility, it isn't about money. It isn't about directly of a venal interest. It's about this participation in politics. And so one example we haven't talked about is, you know, in a new way over the last, let's say, 30, 40 years, there are legal organizations that are associated with political points of view, really important ones. And the, the Federalist Society is one of those. And so, you know, when Supreme Court justices go to speak to the Federal Society, not the only one, the American Constitution Society is sort of a, a second uh, entity. When they go to talk to those things and they give speeches to those audiences and there's a feeling, uh, which, of course, some people are predisposed to, to think of the justices as political, as political in a certain kind of way. I think that's the deeper root of frustration as as people are watching the court move in a very starkly conservative direction and you have justices who have personal links uh, to very strongly partisan and conservative causes, there's a number of folks who are just really frustrated about that. And I think that in a certain way, the, the code of conduct isn't really on par. The really issue is about the decisions the court is going to make in the future. And so I, I think, again, it's a good time to talk about Chief Justice Roberts has an idea uh, at least some idea in some areas of trying to make incremental changes and not make dramatic changes and not impose new and revolutionary sort of a- attacks on existing precedents and uh, taken for granted principles of American law. You know, if the court actually does a radical shift to the right, I'm not sure a judicial code of conduct is really going to cut the mustard sort of on trying to restore credibility. So I think part of it is I, I, I want to I, the real thing that I would care about is I think uh, the justices individually, I hope and I trust and I want them to take seriously this moment and their role in maintaining the appearance of propriety. And then I think the decision making, the proof is in the pudding in the end. And I think the decision making um, you know, this court is going to be judged as legitimate, illegitimate, mostly based on the decisions it makes, not on this sort of ethical conduct stuff, which I think is collateral with integrated with. But it's not I don't think it's really the heart of what people are upset about. High perception. 
That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.